KYW Original Podcasts. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, we talk mass shootings. The numbers of mass killings are going up. President Donald Trump blames mental illness. When you take a sicko like this guy, who's a sick guy. But what are the facts? Mass shooters are sick in their own unique, special way. Are there kinks in the system and is focusing on mental health a way to deflect from the real cause? It's easier to get a gun than mental health care. We dig in. Then there's a national effort that'll send government agents possibly to your doors. The ultimate goal is a number. Philly Counts 2020 talks U.S. Census, what you can expect, and when they could be coming. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is mass shootings and a statement by President Donald Trump that mental illness is to blame for these mass killings. This week, he suggested reopening mental institutions to deal with mass killers. Can't put him in jail because he hadn't done anything yet, but you know he's going to do something. Experts have clapped back, arguing that pointing to mental illness targets the vulnerable and lets gun manufacturers off the hook. So what's the connection between mental illness and mass shootings? And what are the real facts behind this uptick in gun violence? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Frank Farley. He's a professor of psychology studies and education at Temple University. We also have Amy Federer. She works with the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in Philadelphia. And finally, on the phone, we have conservative columnist and talk show host Christine Flowers. She's written extensively on this issue. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Hi, Cherry. Frank, I want to start with you. Any response to the claim that mental illness is the cause of this these mass shootings we've been saying? There are almost no behaviors that we know about in psychology that are caused by one thing. It's nearly always a recipe with several ingredients. And the data suggests that somewhere between possibly 3 to 5% of shootings and such violence may be involving mental illness. I mean, that's an extremely small percentage. I mean, we clearly know that the mentally ill are much more likely to be a victim than a perpetrator. But 3 to 5% may involve serious mental illness. Christine, you've written about this issue in multiple columns. To explain your position on this. I want to thank Frank for making that statement that there is never really just one cause when you're talking about a phenomenon. And I would agree, and I've mentioned it numerous times, that it is much, much more likely for someone who suffers from a mental illness to hurt themselves than to hurt others. This week, we commemorate the fifth anniversary of the suicide of Robin Williams, um, who suffered from depression, and he he took his own life. My own brother, Jonathan, um, took his own life 21 years ago, and also... Um, suffered from some some issues as well. And so I'm fully aware uh, that we are not talking about um, mental illness as the sole primary overarching or even major cause of the, the gun violence that we've dealt with in the past few weeks or in the past few years. But I do think my position is that 
we should not be prevented from mentioning this factor when we are talking about this type of violence. Back in 1985, I was stuck in traffic headed to the Springfield Mall. I never made it to the Springfield Mall. And thank God that I didn't because that day, which was October 30th, Sylvia Segrist, who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia with an assault rifle, went into the Springfield Mall and killed three people. Adam Lanza, as well, the Newtown shooter, suffered from severe mental illness, did not get the help that his mother was counseled to get for him by Yale psychologists. While I would never say that mental illness is the only cause or even the major cause, do not mention it. I think it's malfeasance, and we, we need to look at it as one of the factors um, in a holistic approach to trying to solve this problem and to help those who need yeah. the help. Amy, when you hear this, you work in this community. Do people, what do people hear when they hear this casting of blame kind of go down? So I think it's like the true definition of stigma. If they're shooting, they, there must be something, they must have mental illness. And I think that people like in our support groups that come to our support groups, they get very affected by that mm -hmm. because they feel like everybody looks at them and they don't want to tell people that they have mental illness for that exact reason, that people get scared of that thought of being mentally ill. Like Frank pointed out, that's a thing we always talk about is that you're more likely to be a victim of the violence rather than being the perpetrator. So I think it's it's um it's offensive when people hear that and they they take that to heart and you know just because you have a mental illness doesn't mean you have a heart and doesn't mean you don't have feelings it's it's hurtful to hear something like that and most people i mean like majority of people are not uh violent and and so because frank there are so many people out there living life i know quite a few they're successfully maintaining uh, mental health despite their own challenges if you ever get involved in violence but we've talked about the fact that there's actually a better link, and that is domestic violence. That that is also, that's, a lot of people with mental health challenges have nothing to do with domestic violence. Absolutely. Domestic violence is a big problem. It's the one form of violence the police are very, and, mm -hmm. don't like to get involved in. You know, a call for domestic violence to the police. The cops really, you know, are wary of, of those kind of things because they can evolve in very quickly into serious violence. So are there better th you know, things that, versus just saying broad, this is a, a definite factor here with mental illness? Are there other factors that have the thread through all of these types of, of, of mass shootings that have nothing to do with mental illness? Oh, yeah, sure. Male, between 20 and 40, white. Yeah, there are a lot of things that have nothing to do with mental illness that seem to be fairly consistent in mass shootings. And uh, we should be looking more at that than at mental illness. Mental illness, based on the statistics of 3 to 5% that I mentioned, mental illness is not going to help us very much in uh, understanding mass shootings and preventing mass shootings. It is such a minuscule proportion of, the, of what happens, you know, of the causal factors. And <clears throat> often it's not causal at all. It's correlational. It happens to be correlated with mass shootings, but it's not, not actually the causal factor at all. So it gets kind of complicated to invoke mental illness in mass shootings. There are so many other factors. And furthermore, one of the things that worries me too is not just the stigma. Well, an, a complication of the stigma is that it may prevent some people from seeking help. 
mm. you know, who mm, need yes. need help. And they might worry that, oh, my God, they might think that I'm a, you know, a mass shooter or something if I go for help. We don't want that. We want people who are suffering mental um, issues to seek help. When you hear this, Christine, should we as Americans be focusing on some of these other threads to try to deal with those causal factors versus shining a light that sort of pushes people underground and, and sort of away. Absolutely. And in, in fact, the column that I wrote this uh, past week was in reaction to another column that sort of diminished, demeaned, um, made fun of something that Archbishop um, Charles Chaput had stated. What Archbishop Chaput had said, and his comments were taken uh, completely out of context, was that anyone who believes that gun control will stop mass shootings is a fool. What he meant was anyone who believes that gun control is the only thing that is going to save us from these mass shooters is foolish. And it was taken as if he was saying, oh, people who support gun control are fools. No, we need the exact type of approach that Frank is talking about, a holistic approach, looking at all of the different factors that would make someone, that would create someone who would be capable of killing large numbers of people. Some of the things that Archbishop Chaput mentioned were also the uh, were poverty, discrimination against immigrants, for example, was the situation of single-parent families. The vast majority of the shooters are men, and they happen to be, for the most part, young men. So we have to look into what kind of an impact does not having a father have on the psyche of someone who would be able to commit this type of crime. My point was, we shouldn't not speak about it. The last thing you want to do is stigmatize someone and prevent them from getting the help that they need. But by the same token, you don't want to look in the other direction because you're afraid of hurting someone if, in fact, that element really does play a role in saving the lives, not just of the person who may be suffering from a mental illness, but other people. You work within this this system, Amy. How would you rate the system? Are there roadblocks for people trying to seek help? Could this be flipped to where we do fix some of these kinks, even though only a small number of these shootings actually involve people with mental health challenges. There's a lot of kinks and there's there's problems with every kind of system. And there's definitely flaws within the mental health system. Here in Philadelphia is one of the best mental health systems mm. that we have. And we still have Kudos issues. Kudos to Philly, yeah. Yeah, we, but we still have issues and there's still a lot to work with. Like if somebody has commercial insurance, they might not get the same type type of benefits and access that somebody who might have Medicare or Medicaid. And that's just the simple fact. And so people think that they're having this great insurance and they're having more roadblocks than somebody who might have their state insurance. And then there's also things like the horrible thing of when you go into a crisis center, um, you might get let out and you don't have any follow-up aftercare set up. So you go into a crisis center, you're suicidal, and then they say, okay, you're stabilized and you can go home, but then they don't set them up with any kind of aftercare. So then they're out in the world and they're trying to live by the rules and how everything is structured in an Mm. inpatient setting. And then they're getting out and they're saying, well, now what do I do? Or they get set up with a psychiatrist. And they're waiting to see that psychiatrist for a month or two. I was recently watching a YouTube video where this girl was describing this exact scenario. And she pointed out a great statistic that I knew nothing about was that people are 
more likely to commit suicide within two to three months after getting released from an inpatient. You know, with a Jeffrey Epstein case. Yes. He had an incident. They thought he was stabilized. Mm -hmm. They took him off 24 hour watch. And within a few weeks, he committed suicide. Yeah. This continues to happen. And and that is a kink in the system. People were like, well, why wasn't this man being watched 24 hours when just not even a month ago? He had a you know a clear suicide attempt and and that was a kink in the system. Exactly, yeah. To you know switch gears a bit when we talk about the other conditions, we've seen very excitable rhetoric being thrown around, and we even had a guest uh, several months ago. He was a former neo-Nazi. He claimed that hate rhetoric, unfettered access to YouTube, extremist websites, and more tended to activate individuals with proclivities toward violence. How does this rhetoric trigger people, Frank? The Internet is a smorgasbord of opinions and viewpoints and, you know, extremities. If you're loaded up with hate against some group, you're going to find all sorts of fellow travelers on the Internet, Mm -hmm. which validates your issues, validates your problems. And so, therefore, the Internet can exacerbate a lot of this stuff. You know, you can go on there and find uh, Nazi hate groups and become part of it. The Columbine shooters, for example, you know, were big fans of Nazi material online. And also you can find just all sorts of fresh ideas, you know, to to fuel your emotional problems, if you will. You know, we've seen an increase in mass shooting. I mean, we've seen an increase in in violence. I'm not certain it's due to the Internet, but the Internet is makes available uh, an incredible range of viewpoints. And A-Chan was a, a, a chat group. Uh, that was is based out in Thailand somewhere in another yeah. country. But people were literally sharing methods of committing these crimes. And the latest one of the El Paso shooter had said thanks to these folks. He posted his manifesto and had actually gotten ideas from being a member of this site and exchanging ideas for more than a year. Um, you know, Christine, if you if we think about this, this man, he did have some element of mental uh, illness, but he also was triggered and fueled by unfettered access to sites. Should we, you know, put some of our resources on shutting down uh, the spread of hate messages like that? Absolutely. Um, You know, and this goes against a lot of what um, a lot of civil libertarians believe, that, you know, you need to have uh, the, the marketplace of ideas has to be cleared and unfettered. But I absolutely believe that people gain a sense of solidarity from hearing that other people share their views, and that could be good when those views being shared are healthy and wholesome and, you know, add to the community, and that can be very, very dangerous when you start living in an echo chamber of hate. And I, I have seen, I don't know whether or not it's, there's been an increase in hate or that simply people feel more comfortable coming out and expressing views that they've already held. Um, I think that we do need to do something. Twitter is horrific. Facebook is not quite as bad. Um, but when I wade into Twitter, I, I feel dirty when I emerge from it because there is just, and on both sides, this is not a, this is not, um, you know, confined to one particular political, um, you know, affiliation. This is, there is a lot of hatred out there. And for someone who is struggling in their own lives with whatever issues they might have, 
whether it be personal, whether it be professional, to, to be assaulted with this kind of language and this kind of philosophy that people are less human than other people. I don't think, you know, and Frank might back me up on this, I, I don't think it, it takes a brain surgeon to understand the connection there, that if you have an impressionable mind, that mind is going to be imprinted with some very, very nasty yeah. ideas and motivations. And if you don't have the ability to step back and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, this this isn't normal, this isn't right, who knows what's going to happen? So yes, I absolutely believe, and I believe that the government should have a role in that as well. Amy, you, you've dealt with some of these issues yourself personally. Could you talk about that a bit? And how can people sort of, if you see this someone you love sort of getting wrapped up in all these messaging. How do you pull them back? I do have personal experience myself and I feel like um, I can see it from a different perspective and Mm -hmm. I understand it from a different perspective. And I feel like there are warning signs of people, how they're acting or if they're, you know, doing certain things. There are definitely ways that you can look out and reach out to somebody, but I don't know necessarily So in my personal experience, when I was going through things, if somebody reached out to me and asked me to get help, I wasn't ready to get help. Mm. Somebody has to actually really want the help and be ready to get the help. We have a lot of family members who call us and they'll say, you know, my family member is doing this and that and I believe something's going on, but I don't know what to do. And unless they're younger than 14 or even 18 in some cases – you, there's nothing else you can do except hope that they get the help that they need and reach out for it. And give me some specifics on these warning signs that are like a red flag for people. So I would definitely say somebody who's being more introverted, somebody who is not really being themselves. Maybe they're not taking showers like they were before or they're talking about all kinds of things that you know might not necessarily be real. Like there's, I mean, with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, you're seeing things or feeling things that aren't actually there. Most of the time, people are quiet about it in the beginning, but it gets to a point where it's noticeable. And abuse of alcohol or drugs, that's also um, a sign not only of addiction, but also it's also a sign that they're trying to self-medicate. Just being extra sad or sometimes even extra happy might necessarily be something to watch watch out for. We're talking about death, writing about death. That's definitely signs of suicide, giving things away, giving away their personal belongings that are really personal and and they love. And if they're giving them away and kind of acting like they're saying goodbye, and it all depends on there's so many different types of mental illnesses and so many different levels that it really just depends if you're really close to somebody, you'll know if something's different and changed. And and I got to switch a little bit to the, the fact that are there ways of because, I mean, you can't just think that everybody who has these particular signs are going to do anything, especially when there's like three percent, 97 percent don't. Mm-hmm. Frank, well, let's just take the gender thing. OK, the males between 20 and 40. Uh, account for approximately, well, more than 50% of these mass shootings are yeah. white males. But that doesn't help you in predicting whether somebody's going to be a mass shooter, yeah. given the you know the millions of white males between 20 and 40 years of age. So it's very hard to get red flags that are have precise predictive power. Mm. It really is. They're all extremely general. I should say, though, that 
you know, we have systems of diagnosis, yeah. you know, and people are familiar with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and so on. I want to make a point that when these systems were developed and there's the, the Bible of diagnosis in this country is called the DSM-5, yeah. that diagnostic system was not based upon research with mass shooters. When they were doing the field trials to produce this diagnostic system, they didn't have mass shooters to interview and study. Therefore, trying to generalize, you know, talk about mental illness and push it over into mass shooters uh, is fundamentally, in my opinion, false. You're taking a system of diagnosis of mental illness and misapplying it to mass shooters who have never been studied in terms of that system. And so it's just bad science. You know, mass shooters are not, are, are sick in their own unique special way. They're sick people, but they're not sick in the way, at least we can't show that they're sick in the way that some other mentally ill people are. And we should just stop trying to overgeneralize about mental illness and the way we understand it and apply it to mass shooters. They are in a category by themselves. You know, before we wrap this up, Christine, I just want to just ask you this question. I mean, we always shifted away from gun control. Is there a way to legislatively deal with this issue? We cannot forget the fact that we have hundreds of millions of guns available in the United States and high-powered guns. You think about if one of these mass shooters just had a pistol, maybe somebody would have gotten hurt but probably not the dozens of people who ended up losing their lives. Is there a way for us to deal with this mass uh, accessibility of guns while curbing the number of gun deaths we see in these mass shootings? I wish I had that answer, Cherry, and I I agree that there does seem to be a pendulum shift away or an attempt to deflect attention from the prevalence of and the plethora of guns that are in society and and the type of guns that we're talking about. I mean, one of the legislators who was talking about gun control, and he's actually in support of gun control, was saying that, well, you know, we we can't necessarily get rid of the AK-47 or the semi-automatic because it's such a popular gun. Well, who cares? Who cares whether it's a popular gun in society for hunters? If it's a gun that's being used and and is, you know, repeatedly seen in these massacres, who cares if most Americans like this particular gun? That gun shouldn't be on the market because there is a direct correlation with that gun and the number of deaths that there are. I think that we absolutely have to look at gun control. I think gun control really is the the major issue that we need to deal with. But my point has always been you, you focus on that, but you don't focus on that to the exclusion of the other issues that are involved. And with respect to the red flag, I think, and that was one of the things that I went to to Harrisburg to talk about years ago after Newtown, we do need to sort of weigh in the balance the rights of those who, you know, the civil rights, the privacy rights of citizens against, you know, the privacy rights of those who who may have a, a mental illness or a mental diagnosis against the rights of society at large. By the same token, we have to measure and balance the Second Amendment rights of gun owners against the welfare of all Americans. It's a give and take and nothing is absolute. Yeah. And my last question for you, Amy, before we get to the final question is, do you think that mental health advocates can flip this and get more money and smooth out some of these kinks in the system? So that's what we're trying to do. I mean, that's the main goal is to try to fix that because the fact of the matter is, is that it's easier to get a gun than mental health care and in the U.S. And that's 
unfortunate. So the goal is to get more help, get more resources, get more things available to people. And that's why we exist to kind of be an interim in between people who are waiting to see a psychiatrist so they can get some sort of support and be able to get connected to services. Some people don't even know that there are services out there that they can access. So that's a part of our goal and our mission is to make sure that people don't feel as lost and get connected to the right services and get the help that they need when they need it. Definitely. And because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Will the latest round of mass shootings help the effort to stop mass violence or will it hurt those who are most vulnerable and give legislators and gun manufacturers a free pass? I want to start with Frank. We'll end with Amy. And if you could do it in 30 seconds or less, that would make me really happy. I hate to say it. It could work both ways, honestly. But my feeling is it will help. I think there is there is a, a groundswell that something must be done, and I think we will begin to see some, and we're coming into an election year, I think we'll see some forward progress. I hate to be the pessimistic Eeyore in this, but my soul just collapsed when Newtown happened. And if babies in their classrooms can be murdered in cold blood and we're still having this conversation, I don't think that what just happened is going to have any significant impact. Final word, Amy. I sadly agree with that. I don't think that it's going to have maybe this specific incident, but I do believe that um, we're working on mental health and it's become bigger and more of a topic discussed every day. And um, hopefully NAMI can make sure that it gets something done because this is just a shame and, and it's it's sad to say. Thank you to Frank Farley, to Christine Flowers and to Amy Federer for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thanks, Terry. Next up, they want to make sure Philly gets its fair share of federal dollars. The Constitution says all people are counted. The local office helping with the 2020 census and what you can expect. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets residents in our area hot under the collar is not getting their fair due. Well, since it's 2020, it's just a few months away, and it's been burning up the headlines. The census happens every 10 years, and it's where the U.S. government counts residents across the country. The outcome determines the allocation of federal dollars and the number of congressional seats from each state. Now, municipalities like Philadelphia... They have created agencies to help ensure they get an accurate count. We went to check out Stephanie Reed. She's executive director of Philly Counts 2020. Stephanie, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for talking with me. Thanks for having me. For people who don't know what Philly Counts 2020 is, explain. So Philly, Philly Counts 2020 is a temporary office in the city, and we are charged with working closely with the Census Bureau to make sure that we're providing all the support that's needed to ensure a complete and accurate count in the city. So what exactly does that mean for lay people? <laughs> for lay people, that's right. What are y'all that's, doing? That's a good what are y'all, pitch, what are y'all right? doing? Yes, <laughs> that's right. So there's a couple of things we're doing. First, we are responsible for convening the Complete Count Committee. Okay. Complete Count Committees are something that the Census Bureau has encouraged in many previous census years. It's not new, but it's a it's a group of volunteer people who come together 
to work on a strategy to ensure a complete count. For Philadelphia, we have a very robust complete count committee. We've got 19 subcommittees. They are all working subcommittees and they are meeting. So we have a staff of including myself, 10 people in the office. Mm -hmm. And a big part of what our staff is working on is providing support to convene those complete count committee subcommittees. And then we also have an engagement plan that is the common thread through all of the work that takes people through the different phases of the work we're going to be doing, key dates, which are moments that we want for people to be doing similar things, and provides opportunities for volunteers who may not be part of the Complete Count Committee to plug into our work. Yeah. And so just so people have an understanding, because I I think people know what the census is, but then they forget. And they're literally the government is literally wants to know who's where and they only want to count you like one time. That's right. That's that's exactly right. And I think it's important because people get confused. There's a long form and a short form. There used to be a mix of long and short form during the decennial years. Starting 20 years ago, they started phasing that out so that now we only do the short form. So no one's going to get a big book of questions in 2020. They're only going to get nine questions. The Census Bureau just put out a sample of the questions, and it's literally nine questions. In 2010, it was 10. So we're even less questions now, which is great. So it's very fast. People can do it in about 10 minutes and they just breeze through it. The goal of the decennial census, the ultimate goal is a number. So yes, they're going to ask a couple of other questions, but a lot of people think of census data as data that you use for a lot of statistical analysis. You like look at different poverty factors or things that happen in cities or different patterns for growth. A lot of that data actually gets captured in the 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 long form version of the census the decennial census is really hyper focused on getting a number of people and as you mentioned that's used for two purposes the allocation of federal funds and the um, distribution of congressional districts. And then not just congressional districts. Those numbers impact us all the way down to our council districts. Wow. And so Philly typically gets about $3 billion from the federal government every year. And so how important is it that folks show up and fill out these nine questions. Yeah, it's absolutely critical because there are ways that the Census Bureau uses, um, they fill in data that, that doesn't, if people are not counted. But those ways of filling in data are not as accurate as self-response. And the Census Bureau knows that, and they say that. So our goal for our work is to make sure that we never get to a point where we're estimating the number of people in households. We want people to self-respond. And there's a lot there's a lot of advantages to self-response. You know, we have some people who are concerned about, would this actually be the Census Bureau at my door? Right. Yeah. This comes up a lot. Like, how will I know that the person at my door is actually with the Census Bureau? The best way to make sure you're never in that scenario is as soon as you get the census, complete the census. Then no one will ever come to your door. And I think that's the thing. And one of the things I learned is that they only come to your house when you don't fill out the the form. (laughs) That's right. And you can mail it in. You could go online and fill it out. There's tons of ways. And if they send like four mailings or something, and if Mm -hmm. you don't do that, that's when the the people knock on the door. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. There's five mailers. So the first three will be... a. It'll. I think it's going to be a postcard, yeah. and it'll say essentially, "Hey, it's time to complete the census." Um, they'll start coming in March, and they'll give you an individual code that you can use online, or they'll give you a phone number. 
And each time they mail, do the new mailer, it only goes to people who haven't completed the census. So if you complete it the first time, you're never going to get anything else from them. Um, by the fourth mailer, if you've still not completed the census, they're going to mail you a paper form. There's a lot of confusion around this because originally you were going to have to request a paper form. That is no longer true. Okay. If you have not completed the census by the fourth mailer, you will receive a paper form in your mailbox. And you just mail it back. Fill it you out, mail, mail it, it back. That's it. Right. And then the fifth, there's one more thing after that that's a reminder. Like, hey, you received a paper form. Come on, time to participate. And if you don't do that, that's when they start the people with the badges and the, <laughs> and the briefcases knock. come knocking <laughs> right. at your door. <laughs> that's right. And so you guys here on the ground are sort of like, I know that there's, because I mean, people don't always trust the U.S. government. Mm, that's right. And so part of having local folks is to deal with that issue. Tell mm-hmm. me how you guys do that and, and have you created partnerships in the community? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. There, trust in government is at an all-time low. <laughs> we know that. And it's going to be really critical that we're working with people who are trusted at the very local level in neighborhoods around the city. Mm-hmm. Our complete count committee is set up to have to help us build networks within specific communities in Philadelphia. But we also are looking at ways that we can make sure that everyone is using the same message and and having accurate information. So on September 17th, which is uh, Constitution Day, and it's also part of Welcoming Week, we are going to be launching our Census Champion training. Mm -hmm. And that is like a trusted messenger training. It's going to be about 90 minutes long, and it walks people through the FAQs of the census and the most common questions that keep coming up. Some of the things that we've talked about already. Our goal for that day is to train a 1,000 people in three different languages all around the city. Mm-hmm. We are well on track to hit that goal. We may even exceed it, actually, which is pretty exciting. And then we'll continue to do those trainings um, with a goal of training 2,500 people around the city. They'll all get a button like the one I have on. Ask me. Yeah. I'm a census champion. That's, That's what right. the button says. That's yeah. right. And people, we, we've been wearing them since we got them in. And people do stop. And they'll say, what's that about? And then they'll ask some questions. So the goal is that um, we have a very small, modest budget for the city to do this work. We probably had enough money to run a couple of ads or fund a program like this where we've got thousands of people walking around having conversations with their friends and neighbors. Um, I think that Philadelphia is the kind of city where people want to hear from people they know. Yeah. And I think that's the most effective way for us to get the message out. And I do want to be clear because um, one of the frequently asked questions is, will the census ask you whether or not you're a U.S. citizen? Yes, they will not. They absolutely cannot. Mm-hmm. That was back and forth. It was on, it was off. It was on, it was off. And people feel very confused about this. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason that I think this Trust and Messenger program, our census champions, are so critical because we need people who are going to be standing by the water cooler hearing this and say, no, that's not true. There cannot be a citizenship question on the 2020 census. Uh, That was finally decided with absolute certainty by Judge Furman in New York. It was part of the case that went to the Supreme Court. It was sent back down. This was also the case that the city of Philadelphia was party to. Mm -hmm. So I think that we can all feel really proud to be in a city that fought back against that and won that fight. And the other thing I hear people about, because 
federal law protects the data Correct. because people think that, okay, if I give this information, first of all, it's only nine questions, y'all. But if people, you know, this information is protected. They can't use this to, to, to come into your household and do anything to you. That's right. Title 13 protects that data. And I understand with the distrust that we have in government right now that people are like, yeah, but laws can be changed. Laws can be changed, but it's really hard to change a law like Title 13. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of processes to it. And what I what I will say is through the fight around the citizenship question, we saw the courts step up and do the right thing to protect people. That's why the courts are there. And we have to trust that the courts will continue to do that. I'll also say, just to be 100% accurate, after 72 years, the Census Bureau will release data. That's how we know who our great-great-grandparents yeah. were. But they are very careful about about making sure that they don't release any of that data until it's far enough away that the people that it's related Mm -hmm. to would not be impacted. That's wonderful. And so people concerned because undocumented, I mean, Philadelphia is a sanctuary city. That's right. And there's we do have people who are undocumented here. They should be counted as well, you know, and there's you don't have to be a citizen to be, you know, to be a resident here. And all of that still counts. That's right. The Constitution says all people are counted. It does not say all citizens. And it's important to know that. All people are counted. So we want to make sure that everyone participates in the census. And I do think that understanding the protections that mm-hmm. there for the that is there for the data is a critical piece to making sure that people feel comfortable with it. And now another issue that I have is because we have people who live in group settings. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of folks who move around a lot. Will those people be counted? And do we have any special accommodation for making sure that they are? Yeah, people who live in group settings get counted in a special part of the census called group quarters. Mm-hmm. And they start that a little early. So that will actually, after the people that are out right now, the next time that you'll see people out in the community from the census bureau will be for group quarters. And that'll start in February of 2020. Group quarters also includes students who live on campus. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of universities we here. We do. And we want to be sure that all the students know you get counted where you go to school. Don't go home and think you're going to be counted after that. You get counted where you go to school. And I know that that's a little different, right? Students would be used to maybe being on their parents' taxes or, you know, there's a lot of times that students end up on their parents' forms. The census is different. Students get counted where they go to school. Interesting, because, I mean, you do are dealing with resources and infrastructure. Yeah, that's stuff exactly where you are. why. And um, the that's actually the reason that they start group quarters early, because we know students often leave around May. So they start it early in February so that there's enough time to get all the students counted. Wonderful. And so should people be thinking census people are going to come to their house? I mean, Other than if they just do not answer these questionnaires, would there be any other reason? So the only other reason that, well, there's two. Right now, they're going around and checking the address file. Mm -hmm. So between now and October, people might see someone from the Census Bureau in their communities. They'll have a little computer. (laughs) It's going to be funny. (laughs) They're walking around with laptops. So I I almost can't, like, picture it really in my head. It's a little strange. And a bag that has the Census Bureau logo on it they'll also have a badge that identifies them so you might see people coming around and what they're going to be saying is like I'm just making sure this address is right are there any extra units in there because what they want to know is sometimes you can see an address from the outside but what you can't see is once you go inside that door there's an ABC yeah. right yeah. or there might be new construction they just want to make sure that we're mailing forms 
to every single address so we don't miss anyone. So you might see people right now. The other time you might see people, and this gets into what happens if you don't complete the census. If you don't complete the census, the first thing they're going to do is come around and knock on your door. And they're going to do that roughly three times. It depends on how it goes. And then the next thing they're going to do, because remember, the number one goal of the decennial census is to get a number. They're going to knock on neighbor's doors and say, do you know how many people live next door? It's actually a really logical way to fill in the data because you may not know other questions about people next door, but you probably have an idea of how many people live next door, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the only other time that they might show up at your door. I do want to stress, and this is important for people to know, the Census Bureau will never ask you to step outside of your home. Yeah. Ever. So if someone is asking you to step outside of your home, that would be a flag. Yeah. And they have badges and briefcases That's and right. these laptops. <laughs> That's right. So, they look very federal. <laughs> and, they, and they've been trained right. to deal with people being a little skeptical, yeah. I'm sure. I would say if someone has a, someone at their door that they're not sure about and they want some help figuring it out, they can also call Philly 311. Yeah. So we have worked with 311 to make sure that they have information to answer basic questions around the census. And then they also know how to connect with us and we know how to connect with the Census Bureau. So if someone feels nervous about someone who's at their door, call 311. Let us help figure it out. Yeah. And so as we wrap this up, I know there are jobs. There are some jobs. That's right. They're good jobs, Lots too. Lots of people. I heard they're good jobs, That's people. Right. That you're going to be busy. It's seasonal, but you, you'll be busy for quite a few months. That's right. Yep. So the 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 position they'll be hiring the most people for are called enumerators. Those are the ones that go door to door. In Philadelphia, they pay $21 an hour. Ooh. That is not bad. That's some good change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really flexible. So that's one of the things that I, I want to be sure people understand. Every week, you'll go onto your device that they give you, and you'll enter the times that you're available, and then the computer will spit you back a schedule. So if you're a student, or let's say you're a parent, and you just want to like get some extra money and like have some extra hours, or maybe you're underemployed, these are great opportunities for you as well. It's not only full-time, like straight kind of hours. Yeah, because there's all different times that people are home that you, I'm sure they're going to be trying different times of the day. That's right. uh, And things like that. So um, what are the resources for people who may have questions? Yeah, for people who have questions, you can go to phila.gov forward slash census. And we have links on our page to get involved with us. We also have links where you can click on to get more information about jobs with the Census Bureau. It's a great place to start. Wonderful. Is there anything else you want to add about this? Um, I just want for everyone to know that your data is absolutely secure (laughs) and that there is a lot at stake in Philadelphia if you don't participate in the census. You know, things that are tied to the census data include school lunch program, right? It's, um, excuse me, it's roads, it's public spaces. Um, There's a lot of education tied a lot of funding tied to education. So we want to be sure that people understand that the stakes are really high here if we choose not to participate. Yeah, and there's a lot of people here who need these federal funds. That's right. We need <laughs> and we this need money. this money, and <laughs> we right. need our seats in Congress because a lot of critical things are being decided, and we want our representation. So with that, I want to say thank you to Stephanie Reed. She's executive director of Philly Counts 2020. Thank you. Next up, she's teaching teen girls to curate their lives. Whatever we want out of life, it's up to us to go after it. The South Jersey Teachers Nonprofit and the motivation behind it all. We'll be right back. 
When we're out of time to give you the backstory, there's Scroll Down, the new podcast from KYW. Quality pre-K programs, not just ones that provide daycare. Cases is three years old now, but we have not forgotten. And at the very end, I gave her a hug. I was in tears, and she whispered in my ear, everything I told you, it was a thousand times worse. What you didn't hear on air, from the KYW team ready to tell all. Search Scroll Down on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, the Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now, we here at KYW, yo know, we are all about community and across the bridge. One Trenton woman is working to make a difference for young women. She founded the organization Curate Your Life to combat gender inequality in youth development. And for the next year, she will be an ambassador for the United States of Women. Here to tell us her story is Deja Jones. Deja, welcome to Flashpoint. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and share my story. Yay, yay. (laughs) This is her first radio show. Yes, it is. So, first of all, I love the title, Curate Your Life. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that means. So, I switched my career maybe about four years ago into education, and I still wanted to carry some of those artsy elements with me. So, when I think of a curator, I think of someone who's all about aesthetics. Mm. So, they're all about how they want people to feel, how they want something to look. Whatever we want out of life, it's up to us to go after it. So, Curate Your Life came in a very transitional moment in my life, I was recently out of a really long-term relationship. And I didn't realize that I had invested so much into that relationship. Mm. And I had to learn how to be an adult on my own. So the Curate Your Life was actually something very personal that became something that I wanted to do for teen girls so they never have to like yeah. figure it out on their own like I did. And so what problem did you see among teen girls that you thought Curate Your Life could help solve? So that year that I started Curate Your Life in 2017, it was also my first year as a high school teacher. And one of the things that I realized, the girls were coming in very academically high, but socially there was a lot missing. At that time, the school also had a lot of interventions and there weren't a lot of girls being referred for programs like that. So I started Curate Your Life as a way to create that space for them. We started with after school programming. We did our first summit in January 2017 with 100 girls. And we had community members from the city of Newark come and talk to the girls about things like sisterhood. We had a leadership development. We also had someone come in and do yoga and restorative like healing practices with the girls and teaching them how to meditate. I noticed that it was a need. Like So even when I didn't return to the school the next year, I'm like, how can I make this a community initiative? And when you talk about girls, because when you say they were mm-hmm. academically intelligent, so book smart, but mm-hmm. street smarts, what specifically were, were you referring to there? Stereotypically, girls who live in uh, communities like Trenton or Newark or Camden, they're automatically labeled as at risk. And a lot of the times the girls are angry, but they're not angry about something that the teacher did or something that the school administration did. It's just, you know, if you walk around your community every day and you're constantly seeing things that are traumatic, it weighs heavy on you. And a lot of the times it will manifest in the classrooms 
where, you know, a small attitude might be escalated because the teacher didn't take the time to figure out maybe something happened at home that morning that affected her. So how can I be a support to her? But, you know, sometimes the discipline policies that are taken with girls is very much escalated. So I had girls in my class who spent more time outside of my class that year than they actually spent in my class that year because they're suspended. And you you get to internalize this conflict resolution where when you come into conflicts of your own, you address it in the same way that it's being addressed for you. And then just another thing is just learning how to communicate in different spaces. How you would communicate with your homegirl, you know, it's not necessarily what you would do in a more professional setting. Yeah. So that was something that was very lacking. And I really wanted to create a space that they're able to, like, teach me some things, too. You know, it's been a while since I've been a teenager, so a lot has changed. And making sure that I'm always keeping myself relevant to their needs. So when you see those girls, do you see yourself in in a way? Yeah, I was a very social student. But I feel like because I wasn't disruptive, I was often overlooked. So there's like a spectrum. You know, you have the students who are tier one, you know, who are pretty mellow and calm. They're oftentimes overlooked and not challenged. But then you have the tier three students who are the ones who might be experiencing some trauma in their life, might need some additional support. I just feel whatever end of the spectrum you fall on, there should be something for you still. Yeah. And so that's where Curate Your Life kind of comes in. Yes. So a lot of times when we're working with teen girls, we focus a lot on self-esteem and beauty and things like that. But I always say self-esteem isn't something that you can teach. I'm 29 years old and it's still something that I struggle with every day. We want to empower the girls through civic engagement whether you're feeling a certain type of way about reproductive health or access to food or the education quality in your school, here are ways that you can organize around this issue and make your voice heard. And I feel oftentimes when we find our voice and when we find the power in our voice, we ultimately become more confident people and we become doers and we become less sit back type of people and observe. And that's what we do at Curate Your Life. We present topics and issues to the girls And then we allow them to work through what they would do to, like, overcome that issue or who are the people we can talk to in our community to have our voices heard. Wonderful. And so how how many girls have you impacted since you started? I would say about 300 girls between Newark, New Jersey and Trenton, New Jersey. Congratulations. So how can people support you and your mission? Well, you can visit our website at curateyourlife.org. We always have an event coming up. We're uh, preparing for our third annual summit, which is going to be in Trenton on August 24th. And we're looking for community sponsors. We're looking for community partnerships. Anyone who works in youth development who wants to come and have a platform to talk about your services with our girls. We're always looking for donations so that we can improve the quality of our programming because it's very much continual. And, um, yeah, showing up. That's the first step, showing up. All of our programming is free for our teen and our tween girls. We started free. We're going to continue to be free. Just show support, up. Support. Yeah, support. Show up. Donate. <laughs> yep. <laughs> volunteer. All those things. So check out curateyourlife.org. Deja Jones, thank, thank you so you. much for being on Flashpoint talking about this issue in the news. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. 
To quote former President Bill Clinton, mental illness is nothing to be ashamed of, but stigma and bias shame us all. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.